Welcome to Deep Dives, Egypt, episode number nine, Pride and Glory. I'm glad you've tuned in for today's walk through time. Before we continue with the new kingdom, with its cultural renaissance and explosive territorial expansion, I want to take us back to before it all came about. To best understand this crucial time in Egyptian history, we're going to have to travel back to before the 18th dynasty was even founded, to when the Hyksos, under Apepi in the north, held claim over two-thirds of the land of all Egypt, and the war-bound kingdom of Cush knocked their arrows and readied their cavalry for an assault on Thebes from the south. A long period of time during which this very precarious scenario existed, many of the Egyptian towns and cities succumbed to the absolute authority of their Hyksos overlords. After all, loyal vassals of the Hyksos king and Hutuarit, or more generally avarice, were rewarded with the benefits brought from a policy of Mediterranean trade that was perhaps grander than that of any other time in Egyptian history beforehand. The Hyksos expanded Egyptian trade to many Near Eastern frontiers, including Lebanon, the port city of Byblos, Syria, Crete, and Cyprus. These Asiatic overlords additionally proved to be quite efficient in their administrative capacity, and as such, many of the provinces willingly paid their tribute to the Hyksos in return for a peaceful coexistence. But while the large amounts of gold, lapis lazuli, frankincense, and myrrh passed through the coffers of Apepi I and his subsidiaries in Hutuarit, Second Enretau of the 17th dynasty prepared his Theban loyalists for a stand against their Hyksos overlords. After more than four decades of foreign leadership in Egypt, the cries of liberation began to emit from the hearts and minds of the Egyptian indigenous people. For an indigenous Egyptian, especially that of a proud Theban, the idea of a foreigner crowned as king of Upper and Lower Egypt was nothing short of an anathema. It would have been a mortal wrong, a factor that tipped the scale of balance and harmony. It was an affront against Maads and the gods themselves. Egyptian sovereignty had to be restored, or else the very land of the gods would be lost forever. Second Enretau, which we will simplify to Tau for now for simplicity, was very cognizant of the hazardous situation he and his people were in. Although the Hyksos advance was cut off and pushed back from Thebes, Apepi still had control over the majority of Egypt, and as such, maintained a hold on its most valuable resources. Additionally, Tau and his city of Thebes were surrounded on two sides by sworn enemies, enemies that would take any chance they can get to sweep in and finish off the Theban stronghold to crush any last possibility at true Egyptian reunification. Thebes, though, as we have seen, is as resilient as she is proud, 
and would not permit any show of weakness or signs of defeat. The supreme self-confidence of the Theban people would not be broken, and as we previously discovered, their unshakable resolve to achieve victory in the end would lead them into the halls of Apepi I and achieve their goal of reunification. Some suggest that conflict broke out following the reception of an offensive string of messages from Tao to Apepi. This is drawn from the story called The Quarrel of Apophis and Sekinenra. Apophis is another name for Apepi, and so this title is referring to the quarrel between the Theban ruler, Sekinenra Tao, and Apepi of the Hyksos. The story goes like this. Egypt is being depicted as a land in toil, with Apepi in the north and Tao in the south. Tao receives a message from Apepi saying that the hippopotami in Thebes are making so much noise that it disturbs the peace of the king in Hutuarit, and because of this, he cannot sleep. The story continues with several more relays being sent between the two kings, but the rest is lost and the story is cut short. While the story may largely come off as satirical, it represents something much more profound and coarse. Whilst Tao is depicted as being mostly passive in the story, saying that he, quote, weeps in tears after receiving the message, it would be this king that would begin the war of liberation against his foreign offender. Whether or not the story precipitated the war, this pugnacious message would surely have infuriated the proud Theban people, who never let the dream of a revitalized and reunified Egypt leave the confines of their memory. Once the last flames of diplomacy dissipated and ceased to maintain the precarious coexistence between these two kingdoms, Sekinen Ratao picked up the mantle and led his armies north to retake what was rightfully his. The armies of Thebes fought valiantly against their Hyksos overlords. They pressed into the disputed territories that were once under the control of the great kings of old. Blood was spilled over the hot sands as bronze and copper clashes emanated throughout the air. Tao fought valiantly among his vanguard leading his men into battle from the front lines. Tao became surrounded by foes on all four sides and they plunged weapons into his body as he fell into the sweltering sands. His companions cut down the Asiatic warriors as they attempted to make their way to the fallen king, but they couldn't find his body. They had to return in order to save the resistance. After hours of prolonged bloodshed, the two armies diverged and limped their ways back to their respective homes. This is actually only one account of his death. Some have suggested that a murderous plot was played out against him. Judging by the deep impact wounds on his skull though, it sounds more likely that he fell in battle among his warriors or is executed following capture by the enemy force. Also, judging by the state of his body once embalmed, it was likely that his body was recovered some time after he either fell in battle or was taken victim by the assassin's knife or executioner's axe. 
All points aside, the death of King Tao and the defeat of the Theban army surely would have diminished the resistance into a state of dismay and discouragement were it not for the unshakable resolve of the Thebans. As history records, it did the exact opposite. The gathering flames of liberation grew from meager beginnings into an unquenchable wildfire that consumed the hearts and minds of all Thebes. Following this enigmatic battle scene, the heir Kamos, the son of Second Enra Tao, made his dedication clear when he was recorded saying, in the true style of an ambitious Theban king, My wish is to rescue Egypt. King Kamos's strategy in the rescue of Egypt would ring more to the tone of a calculated sagacity rather than that of a brazen frontal assault. He laid out his battle plan with deliberation and worked backwards from his ultimate aim of laying claim to Hutuarit and defeating his mortal adversary. Like that of a keen war general, he laid out his strategy in parts, prioritizing the defense of his southern border before he looked north. Kamos recognized the threat that loomed southward with the African kingdom of Kush, who maintained a sizable army and a highly trained cavalry, and a king at its head who would take any chance afforded him to extend the limits of his rule. He duly realized that if he were to push northward first, he would leave his shining capital of Thebes vulnerable to attack. Thus, Kamos led his armies south to deal with the Kushites first. In the radar of Thebes lied the border city of Wawat, the region previously lost to the invading Nubian armies generations earlier. Capturing Wawat was essential in the creation of a buffer zone between Thebes and Kerma, the capital city of Kush, and taking it would allow for the continuation of his grand strategy. Many generations earlier, during the Old Kingdom, the esteemed and revered King Sneferu established the settlement at Buhen, which continued to serve as a forward military operations base for many generations after its foundation. Buhen is also best known for its massive stone fortification, which was commissioned by Senwastra III of the 12th Dynasty. This imposing stone fortress was the object of the Theban advance. As the forces of Thebes pushed south through the rocky outcrops and sandy desert routes, the lost fortress came into view. Kamos approached the fortress, expecting a maelstrom of Nubian arrowheads, but no such barrage came. The fortress, as it turned out, relinquished itself with relative ease. The Egyptians stationed there, who were under the vassalage of Kush, welcomed the Theban forces as liberators and opened the fortress gates for them. As Kamos led his army into the stone walls, he immediately set into motion the revitalization of Buhen's defenses and integrated a new form of administration into the settlement by placing an official by the name of Teti as the first ever king's son or viceroy of the conquered Nubian region. Following the re-establishment of Buhen 
as a key defensive position, Camos led his forces northward again. Thebes was off to a conveniently easy start. The Theban king's next set of dominoes lied in Middle Egypt. The Hyksos supporting towns that were scattered across Middle Egypt provided a ripe opportunity for the implementation of a policy of total war. This campaign of shock and awe was as intentional as it was brutal. With little delay following the recapture of Buhen, Kamos set out for the towns of Nefrusi, Pardai, and Pershak. He watched as his armies ransacked the vulnerable towns and razed them to the ground. With Middle Egypt up in flame, so too the hegemony of the Hyksos in the region fell into disarray. Before Middle Egypt was beset with strife and chaos, Apepi was already beginning to question the limits of his power from his seat in Hutuarit, which lied hundreds of miles north. The Hyksos king in Hutuarit felt the thunderous presence of Thebes looming over the horizon. Apepi began to feel vulnerable. From his royal palace on the east bank of the delta, Pepe called for a messenger, and he told the messenger to deliver these words to the Kushite king in Kerma. From the hand of the ruler of Hutuarit, Awusera, the son of Ra, Apepi, greets the son of the ruler of Kush. Why do you send as ruler without letting me know? Have you seen what Egypt has done against me? The ruler who is there, Kamos, penetrates my territory even though I have not attacked him, as he has you. He chooses these two lands in order to afflict them, my land and yours, and he has ravaged them. Come northward. Do not flinch. Look, he is here in my grasp. There is none who will stand up to you in Egypt. Look, I will not give him passage until you arrive. Then we shall divide up the towns of Egypt." With this message, the envoy set off for the city of Kerma via the western desert routes. Day and night he toiled as he hastily made his way to Nubia. The busy highways of the western trade routes provided ample cover for him as he traversed over the landscapes until bands of Theban scouting parties crossed his view. He tried to escape but was captured brought before Kamos. After a row of significant victories, Kamos was delivered an extra stroke of luck. What might be seen as a simple request for aid was interpreted by Thebes as an undisclosed lack of strength on the part of the Hyksos. If the armies of the Hyksos were so formidable and far-reaching, then why so fervently request for aid and provide to the Kushites such an ample reward for their assistance? Whatever the case may have been, Kamos recognized the peril in store for his kingdom if the Kushites and the Hyksos hemmed him in, and so he acted with haste. His reaction was decisive and intimidating. He spared the unfortunate scout and instead sent him back to Hutuarit, with a foreboding message for Apepi. It read, I will not leave you alone. 
I will not let you walk the earth without my bearing down upon you. Confident with his recent string of victories, Kamos decided to push his forces into the very center of Hyksos' rule. As he sailed his navy down the Nile, he pressed down upon the royal citadel itself, sending it to siege. His armies barraged the walls and destroyed the surrounding country, but without any lasting success. With the citadel still intact and Apepi safely guarded by his thick walls, Kamos decided to return his forces to Thebes, still claiming triumph over his enemy. This triumph would prove to be short-lived, though, as Kamos was claimed by fate in the year 1539 BC. His premature death put a halt to the Theban advance, but thanks to Kamos's efforts, any immediate retaliation by the Hyksos or the Kushites were put in check, while the heir to the throne, Amos I, slowly came to age. Ten long years of stalemate ensued during this time, and the boundaries of both kingdoms largely remained the same. This decade of inactivity came to its end in 1529 BC, when Amos, son of Abana, finally came to a ruling age. After years of service in the Egyptian navy, Amos I was ready to take his seat at the head of the army. The reinvigoration of the War of Liberation began with his navy. He ordered the Marines to push north to blockade Hutuaret and curb any attempt of the Hyksos army in breaking out. It was a classic pincer move. Amos led his foot soldiers up through Middle Egypt to set siege to the cities of Memphis and Eunu. Setting his forces upon these two cities first was no coincidence, but entirely intentional. Memphis served as the traditional capital of a unified Egypt for many centuries, and holding it as a Theban stronghold was as strategic as it was symbolic. Iunu served a different purpose altogether, with Iunu serving as the cult center of the god Ra, the sun god, and perhaps the most powerful god of the Egyptian pantheon. Amos secured his divine ordainment to rule all Egypt. With Memphis and Iunu now in the hands of Thebes, Amos became a national king. Thebes was nearing victory. As the land forces of Thebes pressed further into Hyksos territories, they met increasingly stiff resistance. Nevertheless, they pushed forward until they reached the border fortress of Charu, which they fell upon with a violent siege. After several months of brutal conflict, the last stepping stone before Hutuaret was crossed. Charu fell to the Thebans. Looking out from the bastions of Charu, Amos contemplated his next moves. From Charu, the seeds of a final assault were sown. Apepi was now caught in dire straits. any potential retreat being blocked off by Amos's marines and Apepi's forces being too weak to face the Thebans, he capitulated and Hutuaret fell to Amos. With Hutuaret now in the hands of Thebes, 
Amos I ushered in his and his predecessors' long-dreamt vision of a reunified Egyptian kingdom. The Hyksos, who managed to escape utter annihilation, made their way into Palestine, seeking refuge among their Asiatic cohorts at Shuruhin. But like a fox chases a hare, Amos I pursued them. He led his armies through the Sinai, and I'm sorry guys, I've been saying that word wrong this entire time. It's Sinai, not Sinai, might be. He led his armies through the Sinai and into the Levant, where he set siege to the city and persisted there for over three years. Once the vitality of Shuruhin was stripped away, it fell to Thebes, and Amos swiftly garrisoned forces there as to maintain his presence in the newly conquered trade and military operations hub. This was the final piece in total Theban victory. Amos I had ushered in an empire, and a national unity was achieved. Amos I did not stop here. Instead, he pushed southward to deal with his nemesis in Nubia. With his forces bolstered and the morale of his men vitalized, he swiftly capitulated the Nubian frontier cities, pushing farther into the country, pillaging as he went, and razed the capital city of Kerma, dealing a blow to the Kushites that wouldn't be recovered from for a few decades after. Thus, with the eradication of the despised Asiatics and the checkmate of the Kingdom of Kush, Egypt was not merely restored, but enhanced to an extent greater than that of any previous generation. The established borders extended far east into Syria and far south into modern-day Sudan. Wealth on an unimaginable scale poured into the royal treasury. Egypt's military forces were refined and its apparatus expanded. The pharaoh was born and the divine rule was re-established. A melting pot of culturally different peoples supplemented and added to Egyptian customs and traditions, causing it to flourish. Egypt extended its diplomatic and commercial arms into the surrounding country, making it an established part of the New World. After this point, Egypt would change forever. Back in episode number 7, we discussed the emergence of the New Kingdom from its warring periods during the Second Intermediate, which is the time we covered in this episode. Next, we will continue where we left off in episode number 7, now that we've completed our flashback to before the 18th Dynasty was founded. I hope you found this episode interesting. Uh, there's a good chance that we do several flashbacks as we go along in order to give ourselves a better understanding of how Egypt emerged into what it became during the New Kingdom. Because we already covered the reigns of Amenhotep I and Thutmoses I, we will only briefly cover them in the next episode, and then probably move forward to even more interesting times. Again, the New Kingdom is an action-packed and information-filled period, within the history of Egypt, and so we will spend quite a lot of time covering it. So, always, I, I wanted to say thanks at the very end. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Really do appreciate it. Uh, keep showing the support, and uh, I'll keep putting these out. So, as always, stay intrigued, and I'll see you next time. Peace.